Welcome to One Symphony, a podcast that explores classical music's relevance in our modern lives. I'm conductor Devin Patrick Hughes, and I'm here to share with you stories and conversations with musicians, composers, and artistic entrepreneurs that aim to unite us into one symphonic world. As an advocate for historically marginalized composers, musicologist Douglas Shadel is a leading voice in public discussions about the role of symphony orchestras and orchestral music in American life. His first book, Orchestrating the Nation, the 19th Century American Symphonic Enterprise, explores the volatile relationships between composers, performers, critics, and audiences throughout the 19th century and demonstrates why American composers rarely find a home on concert programs today. Shadle is also a highly regarded expert on fellow Little Rock native Florence Price, the first African-American woman to win international acclaim as a composer. His research on Price has been featured in The New Yorker, New York Times, and New Music Box. Shadle's second book recontextualizes Antonin Dvorak's iconic New World Symphony within the complex landscape of American culture at the end of the 19th century. Shadle's publications have won two ASCAP Deems Taylor Virgil Thompson Awards, the Society for American Music Irving Lowen's Article Award, the inaugural American Musicological Society H. Robert Cohen RIPM Award, and the Vanderbilt Chancellor's Award for Research. Shadle joined Vanderbilt's Blair School faculty in 2014 and has served as the chair of the Department of Musicology and Ethnomusicology since 2019. Douglas Shadle, it's so awesome to have you on One Symphony today. I'd love to start asking you about your background and how it influenced your interest in American symphonic musical development centering around Dvorak. Sure. So um, I am a violist by training. I've played viola since I was about eight or nine years old. And uh, Dvorak was one of these composers, one of the many composers who was also a violist. And so I had a really formative moment in my training playing the American string quartet. And there's a the big viola solo in that piece. It's a lot of fun to play and learn. And um, over the years, however, I learned that I didn't know much American music from this period. And so it's always struck me as strange that we have this bohemian composer, Dvorak, uh, who's writing a so-called American string quartet. Well, why is that? Why is that um, significant for him in his life? Uh, but more importantly, why is that significant for American culture? And what does it say that someone would come here, write an American piece, and then essentially be universally acclaimed as sounding very American? Um, well, obviously, the New World Symphony plays a similar role in our culture. And so um, just uh, there are many side roads between me playing the American String Quartet and, and me being into Dvorak's New World Symphony. But that's really the long and short of it. Most of my research is on uh, 19th century and turn of the 20th century American orchestral music. And much of that music simply isn't played because it's overshadowed by pieces like the New World Symphony. And so I wanted to um, really take a deep dive into what that piece meant then, what it might mean for us now. And uh, that's, that's the connection. I love to focus on this idea of like highbrow versus the democratization mm. of symphonic mm. music. A lot of the projects that I've been in in my career have been just trying to democratize classical music. And I think most performers who are trying to make impacts and trying to share the music people, that's kind of where the focus is. And I was struck in your book early on, it talks about the Boston Symphony and its objective was to be a full and permanent orchestra offering the best music at low prices 
Um, and this is like the mm. 1880s. And, and, you know, they go on to talk about the differences between, or you go on to talk about the differences between the executive director and the music director, kind of that split in, in terms of mm-hmm. orchestras and the different duties. But so many of the issues, I think, in your book and that Dvorak's New World created, which were along the lines of social divides, of, of racial disparities. But I think it hovers around that idea of of this high brownness and is music for everybody? Is the symphony for everybody or is it for the select few? Many issues that we grapple with today. Can you kind of talk about that in the context of when in 1890s or before when Dvorak was introducing the symphony? Yeah. Wow. Well, how much time do we have? <laughs> this is a really important question. And I love this framing of it, especially the this idea of the Boston Symphony being founded uh, the best music at low prices, because one fascinating thing about the Boston Symphony, of course, is that um, they ended up needing the pop series to help cover some of the ticket sale loss on the other side. So the Boston Symphony classical series from the very start was always subsidized by rich people who covered the deficits. And so the pops was introduced as a second revenue stream in addition to basically the philanthropy that was supporting the orchestra. And so they they learned very quickly that as much as they might appeal to democratic or class-blind consciousness or something, that that wasn't really how the symphonic music was functioning on the ground. So it's sort of despite their desire, Henry Lee Higginson was the founder, so despite his desire to create a space that was open to everyone, which I think was, was quite genuine, that just simply wasn't how symphonic music had been coming to Americans in these large concert hall spaces. I think one of the more unknown stories that musicologists have told, but ha- haven't really sort of filtered out to the American public, is that much orchestral music was heard and performed in beer gardens in large cities. And so you would have, you know, whereas now restaurants always have piped in music, uh, the sort of beer gardens would play, uh, they would have musicians contracted in for the evening or whatever, and they would play kind of what you might hear on a pops program now, or things like third movements of symphonies, some aria selections from operas. I mean, you know, like actually good music that's part of the standard symphonic repertoire, you might say, but just in smaller chunks without the pretense that you have to go in to this, you know, darkened hall and sit quietly from beginning to end, that you could actually enjoy, say, a part of a Beethoven symphony uh, alongside all of these other parts of things, and that that would be a fun, enjoyable type of entertainment. And so one of the things that made the Boston Symphony different in that regard was the actually the idea of shifting the repertoire toward this large-scale presentation. And it took a few years, actually, for them to figure this out, because, again, the trend was to do sort of slice and dicing various pieces. And then over the first few years of their programming, you can see it consolidate into basically the standard overture, concerto, large-scale symphonic work that we see today. Figuring out that balance between repertoire, physical environment, and people's attention spans and their capacity for enjoyment and sort of social engagement with one another, to my mind, has always been a part of the calculus. It's just that so many organizations went in one single direction and and kind of forgot about the other possibilities. And so it is very exciting for the past 10, 20 years. And of course, even more recently, this kind of movement has gathered some momentum to, to try things in different spaces. Uh, with different repertoire choices and different combinations of things. But um, yeah, I mean, like that was always a part of the calculus up until the 1890s where orchestral musicians were just finding places to play and just getting it done, making sounds that we might not recognize (laughs) as symphonic music now, but we could definitely categorize as orchestral in, I think, the broadest sense. And that reminds me of learning about in Mozart's time in the 1780s, Mozart talks about in a letter how his audiences for his subscription concerts are dying out and he had to find new ways to present this music. So it seems like this is a perpetual, this is nothing new for symphonic presenters. Oh yeah, no, 10,000%. I mean, the, the history of American orchestras in the 19th century, even going back into a, l- a little bit into the 18th century, even during some of the colonial period before the USA was even an independent country, yeah, there were these organizations, they had to figure out, are we going to accompany dance balls? 
um, to make some money? How do we do these Haydn symphonies that we've brought over from Europe? And how is anybody going to pay for that? Because I think the the other thread, the other side of your coin on the artistic side is that, you know, musicians, they want to get paid because it's a very specialized art. And so um, people love music. And so there's high demand for it. But the supply side, if you will, is is quite constrained because of the effort that it takes to become really good. And so figuring out musicians, in other words, are always having to figure out, well, how do I make this a livable profession while not completely alienating the paying marketplace? Because figuring out that sort of supply and demand combination is, is really tricky. And of course, obviously, the artistic side of it uh, is a huge part of it, but it's not the only thing. Because as you as you said, it's we see these kind of ebbs and flows of orchestras that fail or that succeed, and then they have different goals. I mean, some of them uh, even distribute their money differently. In the early 19th century, they run it more as kind of a co-op uh, effort, and it's kind of cool to see those come back now in the last you know, 20, 30 years too. And of course, more recently, with even greater steam, you see more kind of musician or composer collectives, this sort of thing. You mean like a collective in the in, in the terms of like how Berlin Philharmonic or Vienna Philharmonic does it? No, not exactly in the sense that th- there would be, in the old days, there was no staff. It was just the musicians ran it mm-hmm. themselves. And so um, any ticket sales that they got, they would just distribute at the end of the season equally rather than being on salary or whatever. It was just, they were kind of, they were all in it together and they were going to, they were going to ride the wave together. They were going to crash and burn together. So that's true. Socialism kind of in, yes, in a way. No, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, one of the greatest little orchestras of the mid 19th century was this, I mean, I would say quasi communistic Marx influenced group called the Germania Orchestra. They were basically political refugees from the 1848 revolutions in Germany which were, you know, democratic revolutions, that there was a huge crackdown against the democratically minded, so they left. And they had a pretty good run in the United States, I want to say, until about 1854. So they had a a pretty good six-year run, but they were kind of this all-for-one, one-for-all group of about maybe 28, 32 players. And, And at the time, they were considered the greatest orchestra that anyone had heard because they, kind of their camaraderie, enabled them to talk through things like how quietly can we play this sort of lovely Mendelssohn pianissimo and then how can we really blast the loud fortes because it was you know it was sort of like Orpheus chamber orchestra I guess and how they rehearse and uh, really work together to figure these things out as a team and the audience could really tell the quality of the playing but to come back to your earlier questions or, or these other questions about artistry they too had to experiment with more sort of pops like repertoire and part of their downfall was disagreement among their supporters about whether they should go more popular or sort of keep the uh, classical repertoire as the core. And so maybe too many cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That too. Right. Sometimes you just need the, you need the um, executive director or the artistic director to um, make some executive decisions. there. (laughs) I'd love to turn to Jeanette Thurber because, you know, Mm. if if it wasn't for her, none of this would be possible. Right. And who knows how much Dvorak influenced. I must admit, I probably think he had more of an influence on American music than maybe your book kind of presents him as as having. But Jeanette Thurber studied in Paris. You know, she was trained kind of the European style and she wanted to recreate that in America. And she did an opera project. She did a lot of projects throughout her life. I mean, obviously bringing Dvorak here was the, the biggest win, you know, for American classical music. But it just seems like in many ways, she never could really get the stuff off the ground. Um, mm-hmm. You know, she lobbied Congress multiple times. Can you maybe talk about some of the peculiarities or the idiosyncrasies in American culture that almost makes Jeanette Thurber's mission in some ways a lost cause? Yeah, no, I, Jeanette Thurber, I think, was a, was a brilliant individual um, and, and really and I'll try to flesh this out a little bit, but she was really a product of her time because just a little backstory for listeners. She's starting to get quite active in the early 1880s and develop these philanthropic efforts, particularly around opera. And so she sets up this conservatory in the 1880s that has an attached opera company to it. 
Now, to my mind, we can't, I can't divorce this from the rise of factory industrialization in the United States because it's the, the, the steel workers and ultimately the automobile a little bit later in the century, you know, the idea of vertical integration and uh, you know, horizontal integration and putting like putting the, the part manufacturer in the same place as the automobile lines, you know, that sort of thing is part and parcel of what she's doing. I mean, she's seeing the education piece and the performance piece and the management piece as all part of the same paradigm. And it's just incredible, by the way, just a sidebar here that the San Francisco Conservatory is now doing the same thing where they've got a label, they've got a management company. I think they now have a second management company that they've acquired. And it's it's very similar to what Jeanette Thurber was doing in the 1880s. And so, I mean, talk about someone who's ahead of her time. Uh, the idea that you could feed your students into this professional network uh, was really incredible. And so the conservatory was originally founded to jumpstart this American opera company. And the idea behind the American opera company was that they would do operas in English. They would support American composers to write operas, and it, and it would sort of uh, naturalize opera as an American art form. Now, it failed spectacularly because some of the other people involved did not really want to do uh, American composed operas. I mean, you can't just make a composers know that you can't just write an opera overnight. And so they get their start basically with, I want to say some foreign, I could be wrong about this, but I want to say some foreign singers and mostly European repertoire. And there's a bunch of outcry in the press about, well, you know, there's all these American operas. Why aren't you doing those? And and then it's very expensive because Theodore Thomas, the conductor, is bringing his whole orchestra and he wants the orchestra to be the centerpiece rather than the singers. And so there's a lot of disagreement there. So it just becomes this huge broken financial enterprise for the opera side. Well, Thurber kind of keeps the conservatory piece going, kind of hanging by a thread after she cleans house um, to get rid of some of these opera folks that failed. And she finds herself in about 1891, so this is a couple of years after the failure of the opera company, needing a new director to give it a new spin. And so what she decides at this point is that the opera is still her dream, but she wants classical music of all kinds, again, to take root in the United States as an integrated part of society. And... What made this, I would say, a little different from the existing conservatories at the time, so there's New England Conservatory, Boston Conservatory, Oberlin, Peabody, uh, are all in place at this time. They were primarily teaching teachers. So their graduates would go back home. It's mostly women. They would go home and become sort of their town's expert music teacher. Um, and, and you can go to newspapers from the 1880s in small towns and say, you know, Ms. So-and-so is seeking students, recent graduate from the New England Conservatory. And kind of like this, is, this was the function, one of the main functions of these organizations. So there wasn't really the idea that these conservatories were feeding a larger national culture of classical music. Well, Thurber thought that with enough splash and kind of a, a virtuosic faculty and more, more of an academic faculty. So she expands things into kind of music history and music theory as well, a bit more than some of these other schools, although they, they kind of rapidly keep pace. Um, it gets very competitive. She wants to bring in a European leader who has experience in that culture, kind of the, the naturalized classical music culture of some of the Western European capitals like Prague or Berlin or Leipzig, Paris, these sorts of places. And she thinks that Dvorak is really going to be the, the one to do it. And so when he comes, he really makes this educational piece part of his mission. And I think, again, one of the more remarkable aspects about the conservatory is that very quickly after he arrives, they decide to offer free tuition to students of color, principally uh, African-American students, because the education of uh, the formerly enslaved or the children of the formerly enslaved, especially, or free people of color was a, a critical question. There, there wasn't that much of an educational infrastructure for these individuals. And with failed reconstruction, just after the 1870s, kind of the dissolution of reconstruction, we're at a time when who gets educated and by whom is a major question. And so they immediately take up the cause of educating students of color in classical music. 
And they get a lot of support for that. As I show in the book from black lawyers, for example, write in and say how much they appreciate uh, this effort because these pioneering uh, black lawyers were often the first in their class to join the bar. And so they see these opportunities for musicians to be some of the preeminent classical musicians. And so, uh, you know, Thurber is, is in a certain sense, very much a part of her time. Also, I think very ahead of her time, because we're still talking about what is a, what is a music education and how can it be inclusive? You know, in 1890s terms, they were thinking about that as well, I mean, far more rudimentary, I think, than we are now, but uh, there are certain analogs in place. So yeah, I mean, she's bringing a lot of questions to the forefront of music education, classical music education, and what that means for this country in particular as a, a, a democratic country, a non, um, without royal subsidies. So kind of in 1892, with the 400-year anniversary of Columbus <laughs> arriving, in America, uh, Dvorak makes that journey. And it's my understanding that she was considering Tchaikovsky, Sibelius, she was looking at, you know, a couple Americans. Can you kind of talk about what, you know, how they landed on Dvorak and how Dvorak felt about that? It was my understanding that he also wasn't nat- naturally inclined to just say, hey, I'll, no problem, I'll be there in a second. Part of the story here, and one that, that you can't quite get from their correspondence, but that I do bring out in the book, is that Dvorak's music was very popular in the United States. And how it got that way was that it was also very popular in Britain. And so far more than, say, Sibelius, who was quite young at this time, and perhaps rivaled to a certain extent by Tchaikovsky, because he had just been in the country to to open Carnegie Hall. He was also a celebrity, but Dvorak had really been on people's minds for a decade, even longer. I want to say 18, late 1870s is when his music is first heard and, and makes quite an impression. And so he had been a, a kind of stalwart presence on concert programs. And of course, when the music appears on the program for the first time, you get this sort of biographical essays in the newspapers to introduce who this person is. And so part of what's going on here is that the Americans, generally speaking, had a positive impression of Dvorak and appreciated uh, the side of his story that he was the son of a butcher and had risen from nothing to become this great artist. And so that really played into their desire for him. I think Thurber saw that and knew that she had a story she could sell behind this, plus he had all the honorifics from the universities in England, and he had appeared on all the major British festivals and all of this. And so he he had sort of all of the check boxes of things that would make a strong impression in the United States. And I think that he too, because in some of his early interviews, he talks about his own childhood class situation, being poor and, and being needy and needing a leg up in his music studies, that one of his teachers gave him books and scores to study so that he could so he could actually learn. And so I think he also felt a connection to that side of American culture, this democratization impulse, this things bubbling up from the ground uh, as opposed to being top down. And so I think that played a role. I mean, the huge salary, I mean, it's a giant salary that she gave him was significant because he had, he, you know, he had a lot of children. They weren't coming over at first. And so he knew he was going to have to do a lot of travel. So there were a lot of logistical problems. But I think g- generally speaking, she saw a lot of narrative dimensions in him in addition to his musical skill and acumen and experience. And then he saw an opportunity here to kind of live the live out his mission of education as well. And then, of course, like once he gets here, he encounters all of these different musical things and becomes inspired by that. And and then the New World Symphony. (laughs) So it's like, that's the next chapter in the story. You talk a lot about program versus absolute music, and mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it seems that there's the programmatic kind of side that comes from Liszt and goes into Wagner and 
and then the sort of absolute side. I mean, I'm I'm grossly oversimplifying, obviously. The absolute side of starting with Beethoven and Schumann and people who kind of write music for music's sake. Can you can you maybe talk about how and you mentioned Dvorak was kind of a chameleon. You know, he was a great politician. You know, like he knew how to sort <laughs> yes, of play yes. the press and he knew how to oh, if yeah. something was coming at him, like he would kind of deflect it. Can you kind of talk about how that dichotomy of program versus absolute music kind of played a role in American music at this time and maybe how Dvorak kind of stayed above the fray? Oh yeah, yeah, no, this is a great question and and again, how much time do we have? So, the origins of this divide, absolute music, the term is coined in 1846 by Wagner of all people. And he defines absolute music as essentially as music that has no social function or relevance. You know, basically, it's de- he says this music is decoration, and that's what absolute music is. Later in the century, theorists like Hanslick, Edward Hanslick, they see that as a positive thing. Like, oh, well, this is music that they say transcends politics or uh, that decoration gives us an opportunity to reflect on pure beauty, that sort of thing. So Hanslick and his crew, who are working right smack in the middle of the Dvorak era, are making this case that music without political pretenses is music of pure beauty or pure musical beauty, this sort of thing. Well, on the other side, it becomes a rhetorical argument. Well, it's like, well, okay, if there's this negative absolute music, meaning music that doesn't have a political role, then we have to call political music something because for thousands of years, people had believed music was political, social, you know, engaged and all these things. Like that's just what music was. Well, now we needed a term. And and here I'm channeling the work of Mark Evan Bonds, the scholar. So he calls it a retronym. This is a kind of a grammatical expression, but it's like, now we need a term for the analog watch. Like once you invent digital watches, you need to call the old watches something because they used to be just watches. When you have absolute music, now you need to call music something. Well, music forever had been political. Think back to Plato and the Republic and how you know the different modes have these different effects and whatever. So this is what Liszt calls program music. And I believe he chose program because of its, its relationship to things like political programs and agenda. So we might think of it not as program in the sense of program notes or story, but program in the sense of this is my series of political goals or this is my agenda. So it's agenda music. And music, of course, for millennia has had some kind of agenda to go with it. It's either a ritual of some kind or, you know, it has a very tight social function. So this distinction between absolute and program is at its core about politics. And the argument that you can never lose is to say that, well, I'm above politics. I don't get involved. But then that in and of itself is a political statement. And so you can never not play politics. And so the, the debate between absolute music and program music is really about, in my mind at least, it's really about people who accept the fact that music is a social art and people who are just, they want to willfully ignore that reality, that they want to see music as existing kind of outside of, of the problems of the world. And I mean, it's amazing. There are many music critics writing today, I won't name names, you know, who say, as soon as we step into the concert hall, we should forget about the troubles of the world and all of this. And I feel like that's okay. But maybe that renovation on the concert hall displaced some of the residents in your city. You know, so can you really walk into that concert hall and be completely divorced from politics, you know, it, does, it doesn't really square. So Dvorak, for his part, presents himself as a simpleton, but I think as anything but. So he has a very sophisticated understanding of these debates, how ethnicity in his case, uh, or at least perceived ethnicity, is playing a role in the reception of his music. And so he's all the time trying to play both sides to say that, oh, well, my music is part of the classical tradition, or oh, my music is not national, my music is just part of the, you know, the great Germanic tradition. But then he says these other things about how he's influenced by Bohemian dance. And, and of course, he writes Slavonic dances and he writes the symphonic movements, particularly in the sixth symphony. That's the third movement is just a clear Bohemian dance, a furion. He and, of course, all of the critics, like they all try to make Dvorak whatever they want him to be. And so Dvorak can fulfill like any function for any combination of values because he sort of puts all of it in there. So it's like if 
you are a huge supporter of absolute music, you will have a tendency to hear Dvorak's music that way. If you're a huge supporter of ethnic music, you will say that Dvorak is your champion. If you're a huge supporter of kind of the Wagnerian, Listian side, you will glom onto his harmonic adventurousness and kind of uh, melodic gift and orchestration and coloration and all of this. So like whatever you want to hear in Dvorak, you can. Now, the flip side of this is that, well, if you hate those things, you can also hear the things you hate in Dvorak. And so he gets his fair share of negative criticism too. And this speaks to your point about how he's always trying to deflect the criticism because he knows that if he's playing both sides, people will ultimately start to see <laughs> the negative the negative side as well. So that's part of the fun, I think, of, of Dvorak in Prague, in Vienna, in the UK, in the United States. I mean, really everywhere as music goes, it becomes, I wouldn't say controversial, it just becomes robustly discussed because of his, his chameleon-esque, uh, that was a good word, he's a really stylistic chameleon and his ability to kind of play on people's expectations of what the orchestra should sound like. This has been the debate for 125, 26 years. Is this an American symphony or is this a Bohemian symphony? And, you know, you talk about how Dvorak said that he imbues the spirit of different, and he probably did this his whole life. He's not trying mm-hmm. to copy. He's he's not trying to transcribe like maybe Bartok or Kodai did. He's thoroughly immersing himself in the style of the music. So he can create something out of that, which probably speaks of all music and all of history in many ways. But yeah, but he right. also talks about he finds very interested in this spiritual music of spirituals and American Indians that seems to possess in intervals some relation to Slavic melodies. This is what somebody said. Dvorak said. So I would be curious about your take on you know is it American or you know Slavic or Bohemian, and then where is Dvorak getting these different you know obviously the, everybody knows the famous melodies you know going home swing low sweet chariot three bind mice mm-hmm. so, you know all the little little pop tunes in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd just be curious on your take on that. The answer that's not an answer is that he would not have written this symphony or any symphony like it had he not come to the United States. So in that sense, I think it is truly American. He needed the United States to write this symphony. He needed the analytical exploration of this repertoire that you're talking about. In some interviews, he describes at length how he thinks about the melodic and rhythmic structures of the tunes that he hears. You're right that he did conflate uh, some folk dimensions in the sense that he found certain scalars dimensions like pentatonic scale and certain rhythmic similarities between folk musics of different cultures. Part of that, however, is that you might say ethnographic understanding of those musical cultures was not very sophisticated. And so no one except insiders of those cultures knew the subtleties and differences. And so to an outsider, a lot of the things do sound similar, even when to an insider, they wouldn't sound similar. So part of what he's experiencing is typical Western European or sort of white U.S. knowledge of music of other ethnicities, which does not necessarily reflect an insider's understanding of those musical types. So, so the, I, I want to—I know that's kind of a gobbledygook uh, <laughs> phraseology there, but um, you know, he, he's not working with what we'll say a perfect source material, a perfect understanding of perfect source materials. However, the closest that he gets is to the spirituals, as you mentioned, where Harry Burley, who is a practitioner of the spirituals and knew the repertoire very well, is is singing them for him, talking about these things. He also encounters one of the more significant new finds in the book is this uh, sweet Creole by the composer John Brockhoven. I get into a little bit of this in the book, but I've done a ton more research on it now, is that there were transcriptions of New Orleans Creole songs that were happening in the 1870s and 1880s that kind of found their way to Dvorak through the, the critic James Hunecker. Michael Beckerman at NYU has found this article from uh, African-American street cries in Louisville, Kentucky, and, and kind of surrounding areas of Kentucky, I believe, um, that Dvorak also saw. And so he's thinking about this spirit 
of folk music in a very analytical way. I mean, this is a, a great composer. Okay, you know, I'm not afraid to use the word great. I don't like it all the time. But I mean, this is someone who had a clear command of Western European compositional tradition. Okay, um, I don't think anyone would disagree with me on that. And so he's thinking about the melodic rhythmic properties and the harmonic possibilities that these properties suggest and how can he integrate those structurally into uh, the conventional formal structures like sonata form and, and what have you. And so um, had he not gone to the U.S. and encountered these different musical styles, however imperfect his examples were, I don't think he would have put together um, in his own mind these things and whether he understood the spirit of X, Y, and Z, I think we can all agree that he didn't quite understand it. I mean, in the book, I say that one of his African-American students, Will Marion Cook said that like he understood the melodies. He didn't understand the sentiment behind it. There's no way he could. And how can I argue with that? And so on a technical level, high, just high level of engagement and he calls that the spirit of because he's trying to assimilate the stylistic elements as he perceives them into a larger conventional medium of expression. So is the symphony American in the sense that he had to come here to write it? Yes. Can we hear certain aspects that reflect Bohemian ethnic heritage? Probably, because you can't just shut that off in one's creative mind if you're kind of allowing it to roam freely. I mean, some creators can sort of do whatever they want if they set themselves to a task. But if he's letting his imagination roam free and approaches the issue through the, the kind of lowercase c Catholic interests uh, that he had, sure, there's going to be a little bit of this and that in there. I don't think we really have to define it. It's it's all of the above. But I think as a, as a historian, thinking about it with a historical imagination, had he not come here, he wouldn't have written, he wouldn't have written in that style. And and there's some indication that Dvorak didn't necessarily know the difference between American Indian and African American styles. Like he he just kind of took it all. And I'm curious if if you can you know maybe address that, but also talk about the Longfellow's uh, Song of Hiawatha. Um, mm. This was clearly a very famous. I think it was written in the 1850s. It was a very mm-hmm, famous mm-hmm. text at that time. Samuel Coleridge Taylor would would mm-hmm. use it for a great oratorio that, that, that kind of rivaled the Messiah or Mendelssohn's Elijah at that time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, and mm-hmm. I, and was also, I think, influenced by Dvorak. Uh, mm-hmm, but could you mm-hmm. talk about maybe Dvorak's relationship with um, the song of Hiawatha and how he incorporated that, or if he did into the symphony? Dvorak really wanted to write a Hiawatha opera and he was taken by the Hiawatha story in Longfellow's poem, because as you said, I mean, this poem was internationally popular from the 1850s on, and again, became people's window into Native American culture, despite its, you know, just the glaring inauthenticities of it. We can critique the poem on grounds of inauthenticity, but again, we can't escape the historical fact that people believed certain things about it and worked their perceptions of those beliefs into their understanding of Native American culture. And so Dvorak was certainly, I think what took him were some of the narrative dimensions of the story and what we might think of as the diegetic music in the story. So there's a wedding dance that happens. There are songs that happen uh, in the story. And so when a musician or a composer who's savvy reads a long narrative tale and encounters moments where music is happening but doesn't exist in our ears, uh, you might want to fill those in. Now, likewise, there's this battle between, I I will get the characters wrong, but I I want to say Hiawatha gets in this battle with another young man. It's like, and, it's like Palpuk Kiwis or something? Or Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I was going to butcher that <laughs> that name. I think you got it probably pretty well. So they get in this battle. And of course, a battle scene is, is, is something that has intrigued composers a lot. And so I think he encounters this text and he sees its operatic possibilities because a lot of the things that happen in the narrative are the stock 
moments in many operas. And so he's thinking about sort of like when he encounters music of other ethnicities, he's sort of thinking about how can I incorporate this dramatic thing into this framework that I already understand and is very popular with people. And so he's really taken with this idea of doing a Hiawatha opera. And he talks quite a bit about how the true path to national creative expression is through opera. He says the symphony, because it's so abstract, is really not a good way for expressing one's national identity. And so he really thinks that for American composers to develop an American style, they should do operas. And so he wanted to do this Hiawatha opera as an example for American composers to follow, but he, he ends up not doing it. And so Beckerman, via the critic Henry Crabill, has suggested that uh, the second and third movements in particular are, are basically sketches, like not just sketchy sketches, but quite filled in sketches of music that could accompany an opera. So even though they have symphonic form and structure, the kind of dramatic content of those movements feels operatic in the sense that to my ears, it's easy to imagine a scene happening while this music is going because we're so socialized into film music. It's very easy for us to see like exciting music and see a, a chase or like a horse race or something. And so he's taking, Dvorak is taking the stock musical language from opera inspired by the operatic dimensions of the of Longfellow's poem. And so that's really the connection is that he's, he's thinking about different pieces simultaneously as many composers do. So he's thinking about a symphony, a string quartet, an opera, cantata, and like sort of several different pieces at once, and kind of how he can squeeze out as much juice as possible. Um, it's just the opera never quite gets finished. And he was an opera composer. I mean, that's kind of what we think of yes, when yes. we play Mozart symphonies. Mozart was an opera composer, like Dvorak yeah. was an opera composer, but obviously we play their chamber music and symphonies, but they're always thinking histrionically. Oh yeah, no, I completely agree. And to go to the absolute versus program music issue, I mean, this is part of what makes that one so juicy too, is that if the more operatic a symphony sounds, the more appealing it's going to be to the Wagner faction, the Wagner and Liszt faction of that debate, the less operatic it sounds and the more symphonically conventional it sounds, the more it'll appeal to the absolute music side of the debate. And so, yeah, I mean, there's so so many layers of, of philosophical and ideological belief that go into how people hear uh, this music. And yeah, it, whether, whether it's opera first or symphony first and that sort of thing, I, I think I agree with you that, that there's many, many cases where Dvorak's instrumental music it's opera first in the costume of instrumental music, uh, just as it is with Mozart. And I mean, like Chopin too, you know, it's every, so many of his pieces are arias in disguise. And and it seems that the crux of the debate when Dvorak was coming to America is, you know, what is American music? Probably most of the critics said, you know, you know, the African-American music, you know, from spirituals, from plantations, that that's not American music and mm-hmm. American Indian music. That's not American music. Go to look at Niagara Falls or look at the Plains or they were trying to decide what was what it was going to be. And here's Dvorak coming in almost just from nowhere, kind of a neutral party in some ways. And he and he basically prophesies that this is the future. This music that Harry Burley is bringing to me, the music of your most oppressed peoples is the future of your music. Can you talk about how that prophecy has manifested itself, not just in the symphonic concert hall, but sort of in the, in the music world in general? Yeah, certainly. And I mean, this is, this is kind of the main narrative that arises out of Dvorak's residency here is this issue of the future of American music and the role of African-American genres or styles uh, within that. Now, in the book, I mean, I think it's really important to point out that this question of what is American music, it, it really can't be divorced from this question of what is an American. And many of the negative responses to Dvorak are deeply tied to, again, deeply held prejudices about African-Americans not actually being American or worthy of citizenship, because this is a time when governments, federal, state, local, are stripping away political rights, I should say politically protected rights that came about in the wake of the Civil War uh, that were that were protected in the Civil War, but then those protections are being rapidly eroded after the 1870s. And so this discussion about what is American, what is American music really is reflective of this larger question of what is American. And of course, that's that's a question that, that like never goes away because we're still asking this today in terms of who belongs here politically, 
what does it mean to come to this country, quote unquote, legally? Uh, and, and kind of what is what is the relationship between the nation, meaning the, the kind of populace that sees itself as a cohesive unit versus the state, which is the government apparatus and kind of the legal infrastructure? Those questions are still with us uh, and kind of being constantly debated in the public sphere and in government. But to, but to come back to this issue of music, the prophecy, and how that's played out, Dvorak, as the book makes clear, was not the first to make this argument about the, the, ra- the kind of a radical inclusivity of Black music into the fabric of American music culture writ large. I mean, this was the position that Black musicians had held for time immemorial in this country, that, that by enacting musical participation, one is making American music of a kind. What made this different from previous I think manifestations of this argument was one, the, f- the fact, as you mentioned, that he was an outsider. Uh, he didn't really have a, a dog in the fight, so to speak. And so he comes and he's sort of like, well, of course, of course, this is American music. And that's what made people really mad. It's because the, the, the sort of the, the, the racist mindset, the, the, uh, there's one quote in the book, I believe, where, where he, the, the, the person says, well, Dvorak must be mistaken. Like he did. How could he just doesn't know what he's talking about? Like, how could anyone think that this? I mean, this is how deeply rooted uh, the anti-blackness was that Dvorak never could have come up with this on his own. The argument goes, and so he just. <laughs> but but I think the complete opposite is true. I mean, I think Dvorak actually knew what he was talking about, and said, "Well, you know, well, of course, like the American music is all these things because it's here." So in that sense, he was a, a radical, as we talked about earlier. He didn't have the greatest understanding of those things. And so he was still, you know, a colonialist or an appropriator. I mean, whatever you want to call it, he was that also. Now, of course, how this played out, I I don't think can really be divorced, again, from the economic infrastructure that's a part of classical music. So one dimension of the conservatory, of Thurber's conservatory that many people don't know, is that they intended to set up essentially a center for the study of black music, black musical history and culture uh, that would rival places like Fisk University and the Hampton Institute, which were designed specifically for African-American students. And so they were going to do this kind of early research center on the history of black music. And of course, there's not a lot of details about this, but I, I sort of anticipate that what it would be is sort of collecting folk songs that, that many other people were doing kind of on their own. Um, but they wanted this to be kind of a rival research center uh, as an educational hub for uh, black music. Now that did not get off the ground, so that's part of the story. But but the the larger part is that um, many conservatories still did not admit black students, um, and then those that did would train them very well. But then there were segregated unions. Many of the larger ensembles did not allow. Uh, musicians of color, particularly women, um, to join because they excluded all women. And so by default, women of color were also uh, not allowed to be a part of these ensembles. And so the opportunities for participation within the classical music infrastructure in this country were, were very limited for Black musicians. And so when you have a sort of multi-instrumental musicians who are also composers and they're thinking about, again, how to, how to live a life in music uh, and make money, there's not a lot of incentive for Black composers who are also players to work with the principal ensembles like the Boston Symphony or those that would otherwise exclude them. And so part of the story is that these musicians go where money is and they find a place uh, either teaching in, in smaller towns or in larger cities. I mean, take your pick. Um, many of them go into uh, jazz and kind of early kind of pre-jazz ensembles, smaller ensembles that are club ensembles. They play dance music, this kind of thing. What I was talking about earlier with the beer gardens, that, that tradition kind of continues um, in many different cultural spheres um, in dance halls and that sort of thing. Um, and this is where we get someone like James Reese Europe, uh, who's writing dance music and, and does the Harlem Hellfighters band uh, in the army. And so that's that's going on. So these are like classically trained musicians who, if they were white, would have just gone right into 
the large scale infrastructure, but are really having to create their own infrastructure um, and outlets for performance and really making their own way uh, economically, institutionally, and so on. And so the, the, the prophecy, while it was largely what I would say aesthetic or stylistic, uh, conceptual uh, about the sound of music, was stymied by life on the ground and the, the sort of legal and economic circumstances that were hindering African-American musicians and, I mean, others as well. Asian American immigrants, for instance, too, are highly discriminated against, and we're we're having to make their own way, particularly in theaters, musically. And so, the prophecy it was very inspirational on a stylistic level. It couldn't come to fruition as quickly as Dvorak, I think, ever had in mind because of these institutional and and social political barriers. But I, I get the sense that he and Thurber both were trying to push against that with the formation of this center, which is why I bring it up to kind of institutionalize black music within a well-known conservatory structure would have been again, somewhat radical, but that fell apart quite rapidly uh, after Dvorak left, which was mostly due to the, there was a huge depression an economic depression in the 1890s. And so the money ran dry. Uh, and so we went home. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious now because, you know, it's, it's almost like now it's almost coming true. Like orchestras are actively going out of their way to play music that has been great music that has been so neglected over, you know, the past 125 years, people like Florence Price, William Dawson, uh, Samuel Coleridge Taylor, William Grant Still. I'm just curious maybe what your thoughts are just because you know, so you, you must have probably, you're probably have studied more critiques of musical concerts probably than anybody on the face of the planet. <laughs> you know, how much influence do critics have in terms of the longevity of the music that they're experiencing and, and, and creating the Dvorak's and the Bruckner's and the Brahms and the Florence prices of today or a hundred years from now? Yeah. I mean, back, back then critics by back then, I mean, the early 20th century critics had a lot more power um, to shape the culture than I think they do now. In a certain in a certain sense, we've come full circle in terms of democratization. I think when I was at the Chicago Symphony in May, when Ricardo Muti performed the Price Third Symphony, I mean it was an almost packed house, and this was May of um, 2022. I mean, an almost packed house. I mean, people want to hear this music, and it was just an instant standing ovation. It was an incredible performance, and so in a certain sense, talk about democratization. People are now speaking with their desire to hear certain things. Uh, that they haven't heard before. So in terms of a critic, uh, like trying to dissuade this groundswell of interest in unheard music, I mean, good luck, good luck to you. Because the momentum and the interest is really high, as you said, for a lot of composers. And, And as much as I am a scholar of Florence Price's music, I have to say, like, there is not a single piece by Samuel Coleridge Taylor that I haven't just loved mm-hmm. I mean, this what an incredible composer um from and for example to, for example Godshock, like incredible music like oh, so yeah, much oh, yeah, like, no, totally and he's more classical like he's early 1800s right yeah 1840s 50s 60s yeah yeah there's so much incredible music that, that hasn't uh really had any staying power and, and as i show in the Dvorak book but that uh, as i'm also working on with price there are clear, clear instances of double standards between uh, white and black composers. Uh, and I bring out a, a few of these in the little Dvorak book. It's a short book, so it's very easy to get through in a day or two. But I, I point out a couple of these where white composers who would, who would incorporate a little bitter piece of a spiritual say that's, that's recognizable, whether it's a full quotation or a little snippet uh, for expressive purposes or whatever, gets praise to the stars for following Dvorak's vision and creating this, you know, truly American music. But then uh, William Dawson gets accused of plagiarism for that. And it's like, okay, which is it? And Dawson then goes on this, uh, he has to go on this PR campaign to just be like, look, I'm, 
like, this is actually my culture. (laughs) I'm writing what I know. And it doesn't even really sound like the Dvorak Nine Symphony. Oh, no, no, not at all. No, not at all. I mean, it's a a total, again, this, this is why it's so clear. I mean, it's just such a ball of lie or whatever you want to call it. It's, it's a misreading, an intentional misreading of the piece, uh, really just as there were with the Dvorak Ninth against sort of the most racist of the critics, which has completely denied the influence of African-American music on him and, and would go try to go to great lengths to prove it. Yeah, I mean, so, so in terms of like shaping a conductor's willingness to take a chance on this music, the critics played a significant role. And, and there's, a, there's a terrific article that William Grant still wrote in the 1950s, uh, actually the year 1950, where he praised, I want to say, Leopold Stokowski, uh, Eugene Goossens, and I want to say a couple of other conductors who not only performed his music, but also conducted people like Price, uh, Dawson, and 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 were were more expansive in their willingness to take a risk. And he said that it wasn't until later in his career that he realized how much of a risk they were taking, given that there's this like guaranteed negative reaction arm. You know, not everybody will react negatively, but like you will get that negative reaction from somebody in the racist society of the time. And so he he really commends those conductors for being willing to kind of take that beating, even if there's a significant positive response. It's like, you know, you're guaranteeing that it's only going to be up to 75% positive, knowing that there will be that negative criticism as well. Whereas most conductors just played it safe and said, well, I'm just going to not bring race or not bring gender into the equation and do this, which of course hampers the careers of the composers just trying to make a living. And so, yeah, I mean, the in this early 20th century era, the critics just had an enormous amount of power over public reaction to conductors, which then had an effect on managers, which then has an effect on where they get hired. And it's, it, it's a sort of a circular system and very insulated. Well, in, in the, the musicology uh, is, is very robust in terms of, you know, musical history around a lot of the European composers. But I really appreciate your illumination of the American music scene during this time, and not just Antonin Dvorak's New World Symphony, your most recent book, but also Orchestrating the Nation. Thank you for bringing such a spotlight to one of these masterworks that we've kind of played and we've talked about and we thought we knew the story, but um, I hope everybody will pick up your your book, Antonin Dvorak's New World Symphony, if they want to learn more about everything that goes into to music amazing, from culture to race to class. Doug, it's been wonderful to speak with you on One Symphony today. I really appreciate your time. Oh, thanks a lot. And and if I may make one last word, I mean, I think what makes this uh, an exciting area of study, not just for me, but hopefully for readers and your listeners, is that so much of the past, good and bad, is still present. Mm-hmm. And... Musicology's decades-long focus on uh, European music making has has hidden a lot of the truth, uh, not intentionally necessarily, but just by happenstance, has um, not allowed the history of American music making to really uh, develop uh, for the public to develop a deep understanding of it. And so, what you articulated is really my main goal as a musicologist is to show how some things really aren't that different. And if we don't like those things, we can change them. If we do like them, then we can keep them going. But at least we can identify what makes these parts of our culture unique and distinct. And we've become more potent um, participants in the culture when we have this understanding of it. So I, I thank you for uh, asking these great questions and, and helping me bring to light these stories in American music history. Thank you, Doug. And I'm sure anybody out there who's interested in sort of unearthing untapped areas of study when it comes to music history can reach out to you for um, some tips on, on how, to, how to enter into the field or how to um, you know, take their career to the next level. 
Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, there, there are way more projects that need doing that I can't do myself. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I, I've got I've got many, many ideas. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Doug. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for joining us on One Symphony. Thanks to Douglas Shadle for sharing his knowledge and insights. You can find Antonin Dvorak's New World Symphony wherever you get your books. Works on the show today included Dvorak's American String Quartet, performed by the Prague Quartet, and his Ninth Symphony with Charles McCarris and the London Philharmonic, Myungwon Chung and the Vienna Philharmonic, and Pavo Yarvi and the Cincinnati Symphony. You can always find more info at onesymphony.org, including a virtual tip jar if you'd like to support the show. Please feel free to rate, review, or share the show. Until next time, thank you for being a part of the music.